All right, well, we are in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and like I just prayed, part of what God aims to do in our lives is to help us see Him to be greater, more weightier, grander, more glorious, more near and present than we realize. And that He deserves much more from us in worship and love and obedience and enjoyment than we give Him. This is what God is up to. And so part of what we aim to do each week as we come together is to paint a picture, if you will, is to fill out the canvas of our minds and hearts with the grand and glorious and true reality of who God is. We aim to have our small ideas of God corrected that lead us to live selfless lives, that lead us to live small lives, and to see Him as He actually is, and to live more readily in worship, in love, in submission to Him in all things. And this passage before us today helps us in that, as we hear a warning about, about idolatry. A warning about idolatry. Uh, God admits no rivals. There is no one or nothing like Him on the level of Him. He, he is jealous, and rightfully so, for our hearts, such that we cannot worship Him and something or someone else. We cannot worship Him and one of the many gods and idols that are all around us today as much as they were back in the day of 1 Corinthians. So we're in chapter 10. We're going to go through verse 22 today. Well, let me read the first part, starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, if you're thinking that's kind of a strange passage, you're not alone. Sounds kind of odd, right? What is this all about? There's a lot of like imagery and, and seemingly symbolism in there. So what's going on? Well, Paul is setting up the rest of this passage with an example, an example of the Israelites, the generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt and uh, that wandered in the desert for 40 years. And specifically, he's showing that in many ways, the Corinthians that he's writing to were like them, or they were like the Corinthians, even though they lived before Christ. So like the Corinthians, who Paul is writing this letter to, they had the experience of being the people of God, of being saved mightily and graciously by God, of being sustained by God. They even, you could say, had a kind of baptism as they went through the water of the Red Sea. God split the Red Sea, so Paul's kind of setting this up as a as an um, analogy of baptism. And they even celebrated a kind of communion like we do here each week as they ate the food and drink that God miraculously provided, just as the Corinthians did. But all of this is setting up verse 5. 
Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So despite being the people of God, despite all that God had done for them, all the grace that God had given them, they rebelled, they turned to idols, and God was not pleased with them. They couldn't rest on their laurels, if you will. They couldn't say, well, we are the people of God. God has done all of this for us, so it doesn't really matter how we live. Let's just go worship these idols that all everyone else is worshiping. And that's the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians and why he brings up this example, as you see as we goes on, go on. So walk through these next few verses. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then Paul gives four examples of that generation of Israelites desiring evil. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this is a quote from uh, Exodus 32, where you find the, the incident of the golden calf. After all that God had done to save the Israelites out of Egypt, before too long, they started worshiping idols. They, they fail to trust in, and worship God alone. They start making and worshiping idols. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So this refers to an incident in Numbers 25 when God's people, quote, began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, this is not just about sexual sin. This is about spiritual adultery, which is how God sees idolatry. God presents himself as a loving, faithful, pursuing, committed husband to his people, and yet they whore themselves out to foreign gods. And at least in this instance, we see God responds by bringing a plague that kills thousands. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Again, Paul is referring to an incident in Numbers 21 where the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses for bringing them into the wilderness. Again, they quickly forgot all that God had done for them, how he had provided for them, conquered their enemies, revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai. And again, God judges them by bringing fiery serpents that bite and kill many. And then last example, and then we'll kind of unpack some of this. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Um, so grumbling could refer to any number of instances of the Israelites in the desert. They did that a lot. And as a result, God promises that that first generation wouldn't make it to the promised land. So they'd wander around for 40 years until that first generation died off and then their kids would go in. Two more verses. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then here's the, here's the, the summary, here's the, the warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now notice two things in all of this. 
First, notice the nature of idolatry. Idolatry is trusting in something or someone other than God for comfort, for security, for hope, for sustenance, for salvation. It involves, on the one hand, distrusting God to provide and be good, to be enough. And then on the other hand, it involves looking elsewhere for a substitute. We tell ourselves, in idolatry, we tell ourselves God cannot be trusted, God is not good, He will not meet my needs, I need to look elsewhere. And of course, just because we don't bow down to physical idols today, usually, we are not a society or a people free from idolatry. No, the underlying heart issue here is found in all times and all places. Can God be trusted to care for my needs? Will God be good to me? Or do I need to look elsewhere? Do I need to look to money, to my career, to to savings, my income, to be my comforter and provider and sustainer and hope? And only when I'm struggling financially will I look to God. Will I look to relationships, marriage, kids, family, friends, to be my comforter and provider and security and hope, and only when those things aren't fulfilling me, I'll cry out to God. Will I look to my ability to have power and influence and control in life, whether in our homes, communities, workplaces, or church? Will I look to the distractions of technology and entertainment to be my comforter and provider and security and hope and just numb myself to the reality and presence of God? Will I look to politics or sports as a kind of savior and give all of my thoughts and energy and time and resources to look for salvation in those things? Idols are everywhere and our hearts and bodies easily become temples for the worship of these idols. A second thing to notice in this passage is how seriously God takes idolatry. I mean, those were some pretty shocking examples, right? Those are not like coffee mug examples. We're told that God is a jealous God, that He deserves and calls for our singular and complete devotion of every human being, of everything that is created. And this is not because he is like a selfish egomaniac and tyrant who thinks too highly of himself and doesn't consider anyone else. This is because God cannot actually think too highly of himself. That would be to be untruthful, unrighteous. He is God. He is actually the center of the universe. And he rightly deserves all devotion and worship and love and obedience. I mean, all throughout Scripture, he says things like, I am the Lord, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He commands us, doesn't just suggest, he commands us to worship and love him above all else. If we are honest, we tend to think that God owes us. God owes us a long and happy life, He owes us freedom from any pain and suffering and frustration. 
But that is not the case. That is not what Christianity, the Bible, teaches. God owes us nothing, at least nothing positive or good. He gives us much but because He is gracious, but He doesn't owe us anything. We owe God honor and recognition and worship and devotion. And the moment we fail to give that to Him fully and singularly, which we do, all of us do, all the time, we have no right to talk about injustice or fairness. It is we who have rebelled against our Creator, we who have disrupted the moral order, who have committed cosmic treason. God doesn't take idolatry lightly. Hence the warning in verse 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So understand what this is, Paul is saying here. This is a warning to God's people, in particular, to those who would claim to be among the people of God, to those in the church, baptized, participating in communion, who are tempted to think that they couldn't possibly arouse God's jealousy. That because God has done these wonderful things for us in the past, graciously saved us, it doesn't matter how we now live. This is a warning against using grace and ex as an excuse to dismiss the commands of God and falling into sin and idolatry. Beware of resting on, trusting in your participation in the church, your experience as a Christian, and thinking that turning your heart from trusting in God will have no consequences. Now, Perhaps you are thinking, and perhaps we might say, but Paul, aren't you misunderstanding that we, unlike the Old Testament Israelites, live under grace? Everything has changed with Jesus. Surely we who are in Christ, we who have been purchased by His blood, saved but through His grace, have no need to worry about such judgment. We are spared from the righteous wrath of God because Jesus bore it for us on the cross, and that is true. That is wonderfully true if we are in Christ by faith. We have nothing to fear. But Paul began this passage by clearly and intentionally showing that this generation of Israelites has much in common with us. Again, they were saved and sustained by God's grace. They had experienced God's grace. They knew it, not as clearly as we know it, but they, they saw it and experienced it. And in fact, if you dig into one of these examples a little bit more, you, you see that it's one that Jesus brings up to, to help explain the cross. So in the Numbers 21 passage, after God's judgment of the fiery serpents, uh, the people humble themselves and repent of their sin, and they cry out to Moses, Moses, pray to God for us that we may be saved. And God has Moses make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and hold it up real high so that everyone who would look towards this serpent would be saved if they had gotten bit by a, a snake. You might recall this, uh, that Jesus brings this up in John 
3, right before the famous John 3.16 passage, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus' term for himself, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So just as God provided a way for the idolatrous Israelites who had quickly turned away from God to be saved by looking up at this stick, so Jesus would be raised up on a stick so that all who look to him could be saved. So there was and there is hope for idolaters, for sinners, then and now. The Israelites didn't see the full plan of God. They didn't see the full mystery of salvation through the cross, but they saw that God was a gracious God. They saw that everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. They knew that. And yet, they were faithless. They turned to idols. They didn't trust God. His grace had little to no effect on them. Is it not then more serious when we today, who have heard of a, such a great salvation, who have been witness to the full mystery of God's grace and compassion and humility and sacrifice for us, is it not more serious when we forget God, forget what He has done, fail to trust Him, and turn our worship and devotion to other things. That is not a sign of receiving grace. That is a sign of trampling on and dismissing grace. That is a sign of thinking that grace is cheap and powerless and merely a license to disregard God and get on with your life as you please. And so... Take heed lest you fall. Yes, God keeps those who are His. He sustains us to His end. He puts to the end. He puts His Spirit in us as a deposit, and we can hope in that. But one of the ways that He sustains us is as we hear warnings like this, and His Spirit in us awakens us to take them seriously. Now, before unpacking idolatry a little bit more, Paul pauses briefly, because this has been a heavier passage. He pauses briefly to offer some encouragement. Verse 13, common verse you've probably heard before. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So whatever it is that is tempting to draw your heart away from Christ, tempting you to look elsewhere for comfort and security and hope, whether that be giving in to specific sins of lust and anger, bitterness or disbelief, or whether that is the, the, the slow movement away from the things of God to being consumed by the things of the world, 
Whatever it is, whatever your form of temptation, there is hope. There is a way out. You are not alone. God will not lead you into temptation. He will not trap you in temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He is with you, fighting for you. He is on your side as you fight against temptation, cheering you on. But is this not, this, this suggestion of loneliness, is this not the lie that we easily give into in temptation and difficulty? I'm the only one who's experiencing this. I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. No one else is in this position. No one else could understand. God has singled me out for punishment. No one else is treated so unfairly. Like, perhaps you don't put that into words, but we think that. And these are lies. God has not singled us out. We are not alone and isolated. God is with us, present to strengthen us and provide a way to endure, fighting with us. If we will turn to him. The other implication of this, however, is that if we give in the temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We can't say, well, God, God made me do it. God, no, there was a way out, and we refused to do it. And I think we all, too, know this by experience. We know from experience that in that moment of temptation, we have a choice. Now, our world does a very good job of making that not seem so. Our world does a very good job of making it think that, well, in this situation, I, I really had no choice. I had to do this. I really want that thing that I can't afford, but my desires are so strong, surely God wants that for me. I have strong feelings for someone who is not my spouse, and, well, it would be wrong to follow, not follow my feelings. I have no choice. Those are lies of Satan. It is a lie of Satan to suggest that something God has forbidden is actually good for you and will actually give you happiness. This is what Satan has been doing from the very beginning. This is the lie of the garden. Sinclair Ferguson points this out. He writes that the lie of Satan in the garden was an assault on both God's generosity and his integrity. Neither his character nor his words were to be trusted. This, in fact, is the lie that sinners have believed ever since. The lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. The gospel, Jesus given for us, died and risen again for our sins, is designed to deliver us from this lie. For it, it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First, his son to die for us, and then his spirit to live within us. Be encouraged. If Christ is in you through faith, God is with you and for you in your temptations of various kinds. He is fighting with you, not against you. He is working good for you. Cry out to him. that word of encouragement, Paul then 
states clearly the point he's been getting at in this passage. Verse 14, and I'll read to the end of our section here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless as we take communion together, as they were taking communion together, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, notice that Paul, the argument Paul is making is specifically about the evil of idolatry for Christians, for those in Christ. Of course, idolatry is wrong for anyone and everyone, but it is particularly unfitting, inappropriate for those who claim Christ. That's the point in bringing up communion. Communion is a sign of participating in and with Christ. His body has been broken for us. His blood was spilled for us to atone for all of our sin and guilt. And through this, as we trust in it by faith, we are joined, united with Christ. We spiritually feast on and are nourished by Christ as we trust in Him, as we cling to Him, as we cry out to Him, as He indwells us. Believing in Christ is not just about getting benefits from Him. It's not just about a transaction where we kind of get some things from Him, some eternal life, etc. It's about belonging to Him, being joined and aligned with Him. You are Christ's. He is yours. This is why the Bible's main way of referring to God's people in, in the New Testament is those who are in Christ. It's not just about what we believe, it's about whose we are and where we dwell. We are His. And so if this is the case, how could we go and join ourselves with a false god? Set ourselves up with a rival to the one true God. How could we give our heart and devotion to something that is an enemy of God, to that which is ultimately demonic? And the answer given here is not simply don't do this. It is that. Flee from idolatry. But it's also you can't actually do this. You cannot drink the Lord's cup and the cup of demons. You cannot eat the table of the Lord and the table of demons. As Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. It's not only don't do this. You can't do this. God will admit no rivals. To attempt to worship God with half of your heart, but then give your other heart to something or someone else as a God, is to fail to worship God. It is to miss who He actually is. 
It's the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me or beside me. There is no rival. There is no one or nothing that deserves to be on the level of God. So hear the warning. Flee from idolatry. And do not think that grace lessens the seriousness of God's warnings to us. Flee from idolatry. Do not think that because we have Jesus and we have such a great salvation that we can go ahead and give our minds and bodies and hearts to whomever or whatever else without consequence. Flee from idolatry. And again, just like in Paul's day, we are a culture of many gods, many places to worship. And we are encouraged to, over and over again, to give our hearts to this thing that will satisfy us until it doesn't, and then to give it to this thing that will satisfy us until it doesn't. And so we turn to exercise, and then food, and drink, and gluttony, and then sports, and politics, and sex, and family. There are temples to these things all over the place, ready to receive our worship. And here's the thing. Refusing to join in idol worship today and instead devoting ourselves singularly, fully to God will make you stand out and seem strange. In Paul's day here, as we've been going through this section of 1 Corinthians, Corinth was a town of many, many temples to many, many different gods. And it was a cultural event to go to the temples and have a feast. Every, that's where everyone was. You went and did this. And if you didn't do this, you stood out. You were strange. That's where people were. So today, giving ourselves to idols, or refusing to give ourselves to idols, will mean standing out in noticeable ways. You don't watch that show. You don't have Netflix. You don't look at porn. You don't have a gym membership. You don't watch every single Mariners game and Seahawks game. Only you know the idols of your heart. I, yeah, I know mine. <laughs> Go Mariners. <clears throat> No, anything can become an idol. And often it's the good things that can become the most controlling idols as we let them become ultimate things. And if you're here a couple weeks ago, you might be thinking that there's kind of a tension here. Because when we were in chapter 9 a couple weeks ago, we saw that Christians are called to sacrifice their rights and their freedoms to engage with and serve those outside of the church, those outside of Christ, in order, for this, in order to have a chance to witness. In order to be salt and light, you have to actually be visible. You have to actually be present, not hiding away in the church in your little holy huddles. Right? The point of light is that it's seen. And yet here, we see that sometimes there is a need for God's people to withdraw and to refrain 
from certain activities and habits. Uh, there is a limit to being relevant or hip or liked and respected. When we are so relevant and like the world and we adopt its idols and gods, we have failed to witness to the exclusivity and the glory and worth of God. And that's what this is ultimately about. Beholding and displaying the glory and worth and the wonderful demands of God. The way you flee from idolatry is not simply by cutting certain things out of your life. Cut out Netflix, you're still going to be an idolater. And this is not a rant on Netflix or anything. Whatever it is, you can't just cut your certain things out of your life and free yourself from idolatry unless you cut your heart out of your life. But No. Ultimately, the way to flee from idolatry is to behold God for who he is. To see him as he is, to have our small and false images of God smashed and replaced with the image of a big and mighty and glorious and worthy and present and real God. We have to see him as he is increasingly or else we will just turn from one idol to another. We will cut off this because we see it has bad effects and we will turn to another idol that perhaps is more socially acceptable but is equally damaging to our hearts and our worship. And again, this correcting of our view is what God is up to, it is what he is doing through his word, through his spirit, through his people, through the church. And ultimately, this is what God has done for us on the cross. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are not only freed from our sins, we are freed from our false and small images of God. We are freed from our indifference to God. When we truly see Christ on the cross, giving his life for idolaters like us, we are freed from our indifference to his glory, to his worth, to his rights, to all that he is and that we owe him. And this is why we must continually come back to the cross. And this is what we do as we take communion each week. We remind ourselves in a tangible way that God has humbled himself and given himself for us on the cross as we celebrate his body and blood given for us. And we are freed from our sins in that, not as we take communion, but as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And we are also and continually freed from our small and indifferent thoughts towards God and our unwillingness to let him rule our lives and trust that he is good in doing that. Let's pray.